It is good to be here with you. We are going to continue uh, our study in the book of Romans, chapter 8. If you want to turn there with me. Um, as we, um, as this is known as um, Palm Sunday, um, leading us into um, our celebration of Easter, uh, we're not going to have a Palm Sunday message necessarily, but I did want to start with and lean in to you and beside you and uh, to, to ask a rhetorical question of you, and that is, is that the cross changes everything, doesn't it? The cross changes everything. I mean, even as we sung this last song, our chains are gone, I've been set free. I wonder... How many of us can sing that this morning and mean it? That as believers in Jesus Christ, that we truly believe and are experiencing even this morning that our chains are gone and we are set free. Because of the cross, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that everything has been changed. And if we put our faith and our hope in Christ, those chains that bind us are are gone. This morning, as we look at two verses, as we look at verses 33 and 34 here in Romans chapter 8, we're going to talk a lot this morning about guilt. We're going to talk a lot this morning about guilt. And I think that guilt is a major, major issue. Um, in fact, it was, it was interesting, last night I, uh, there was a book that was uh, written by one of my uh, professors, my mentor in seminary, I ordered it not too long ago, and as I had this message on my mind, I, I thought, man, I'm going to get this book out and see, it, it's talking about um, counseling, psychology, and the gospel, essentially. I said, I'm going to see if he says anything about that, and there were like three chapters about guilt and about Jesus' death his burial, and his resurrection, and about 400 pages, and I didn't make it through two pages. <laughs> but how big, how big this message is this morning about the cross of Christ and about guilt. And I, wanna, I want us to just start off by thinking this morning, how do we handle guilt? And you can't come this morning and say that you have no guilt, Uh, Or else what we'll do is instead of lining kids up with palm branches, we'll line you up and you'll have to confess to all of us what sin you have committed this morning. We have all committed sins, right? This morning. We are all guilty, right? And so what I want to ask you is, how do you handle your guilt? This is a big, big question. You know, some of us try to work it off. We have these little formulas in our head of, okay, I've done this bad thing, and so if I do these good things, and I can kind of work off my guilt, as it were. Some of us just shrug it off. (laughs) That we, we commit a sin, we feel guilty, and then we just spend a whole lot of time trying to ignore it or to move on, and we never we never really move forward in that sin pattern. And some of us, 
some of us, and I think this is the person particularly that I'm speaking to this morning, that I think that Paul is speaking to this morning, some of us spend a great amount of time ruminating over our sin and our guilt. I have, and I'm sure you have, known men and women that have been bound up in guilt for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I can't tell you the number of times I've sat in the room with someone and they've told me, uh, I'm telling you something I've never told anyone before, and it was something that happened 20 years ago. And they've been bound up in that guilt, bound up so much, and they've just been chained to it. And this is so vitally important that we understand what the gospel would say that we are to do with this guilt. Because if we are chained to this guilt, we will never walk in freedom in this world. And if we never walk in freedom in this world, we're never going to be the light that we're supposed to be. We're never going to be the salt that we're supposed to be as we make our way uh, through this world. And um, I I did just a real quick uh, search um, a non-Christian search about handling guilt. And it was really interesting, all the things that you will find. Um, and and there's, there's just a couple of kind of basic categories uh, that I would uh, put it in of how the world uh, tells us how to handle guilt. And, and one would be is that you just let it go. You just let it go. You just let guilt go. You can't think about guilt. If you, if you bring your guilt, you know, this is a lot of the model you'll hear in Alcoholics Anonymous and things like that, is that you, if you let the guilt of your past, if you bring that into your future, it's going to tint everything that you're trying to do and moving forward. And so you just have to let that go. You've got you've to forgive it. You've got to work through it and just let it go. And the problem is, from a worldly sense... From a Christian sense, we'll talk about that, that 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 can work if we're letting it go the right way. But from a worldly sense, we never really let go of that guilt. It's always there. Another way I think the world tells us to handle our guilt is just distract yourself. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. Think about something else. One of the mottos that I ran across um, several times was, think about your future, don't live in your past. Distract yourself from that guilt. Again, the problem is I think that we lay our heads down at night and, and we can't distract ourselves at all times from this guilt that so easily overcomes us. And, and one of the ways a, a major movement in psychology today is is a uh, theory called mindfulness. And mindfulness is being aware of right now. The, the, whole, the whole concept of mindfulness is that you bring someone into the state of what's going on right now. And what this is supposed to do is unlock you from maybe the guilt or the shame of your past or what you're feeling. And you become more aware of just what is presently going on. This is just another way to distract yourself from the guilt that lies within. And the problem with all of this, as we know as Christians, is that there is a solution to the guilt that we carry, right? There's a solution to guilt. And part of the problem 
with even talking about how the world handles guilt is that the world's assumption about guilt a lot of times is that guilt is bad and the experience of guilt is bad. And I want to say that guilt is good in at least two ways. For the non-Christian, guilt is good because guilt can lead to someone seeing their need for a savior. And if we're just in the business of helping people alleviate guilt. Then that can become very problematic. And in the life of a believer, guilt can be a really good thing if handled properly. If I have sinned against a brother or a sister, I need to feel guilty. I need to go make amends with that brother or sister. I need to um, go to the Lord and, and to declare to the Lord, God, I am guilty. I have sinned. And then I need and have to experience the forgiveness that I'm given for that sin and walk forward. And this is the place where many Christians have a very, very difficult And this is the place that I want to spend some time this morning. And these verses help us. Let me read these verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. And. What I want you to notice about these verses from right off the, the bat is that um, biblical scholars would call this, um, this kind of talk, it's forensic talk or judicial talk. Um, and, and what I want to say is it's not just a, a style, but there is an actual courtroom. When we say forensic, we mean courtroom. Better yet, instead of using the word courtroom, there is a throne room. And there is a judge. And we will be held to account for what we have done. And so this is a very, very real thing. And there is also an accuser. And, and I want to break the accusers. I, I think there are several accusers. Potential accusers, let me say it that way. And there's four of them. And one, Revelation um, Chapter 12, verse 10, and Zechariah 3, 1, talk about Satan being the accuser. That Satan is on the prowl accusing us and attempting to be our accuser. I, I want to say that in our lives, if we think about it, we have others that are accusers. Think about it, Christian. Non-Christians in your workplace, a lot of times are just waiting for you to slip up, aren't they? What's the word? Hypocrite. There are accusers from without. There's also an accuser from within ourself. And, and, and this is very powerful. Outside of God, nobody knows Lewis like Lewis knows Lewis. And it's very easy for me to accuse myself and to pile up guilt and to stay there. And lastly, and this is the one that matters most, most, the Godhead. In Romans 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That God is 
and accuser, and he is the most important one. And so today, today, for the believer, and this is for the believer only, we can stand strong and we can be rest assured in our hope despite the sin that's in our life, despite the guilt that is there, despite not being what we will be, we can stand strong and have hope. And I want you to see, the whole goal for this morning is for you to see how we can stand strong and have hope even though we are sinners and we are not what we will be. And the first thing that we see in verse 33 where Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Another way of saying this might be, who will impeach or remove from office God's elect? There's a very specific person that is being talked about here. This is God's beloved, God's chosen, God's elect, God's people. And what Paul is asking is, who can remove these folks, if you are a believer, who can remove you from your standing, from your position with God? In the tense here, who will, it's a future tense. And so the way that we can say this is, who can remove you in such a way that you will not make it till the end? Your salvation will not be secured. Who can do this? And notice Paul's answer. Who can cast us away? And I want this to resonate within our souls because this is great news. To the answer to that question that Paul asks is God is the one who justifies. God does not impeach the elect. When we talk about here what it means to justify and a lot of this, what we're going to talk about this morning, we have hit already in the book of Romans, especially in chapter 3. But when we talk about God justifies, what we mean is that God has made right. To be justified is to be made right before God. So believers have no fear in judgment because no charge against you will stick because it is God who justifies you. And this is good news for two reasons that I want to point out this morning. And the first, the first reason that this is really good news is that it, this verse makes it crystal clear that you and I, we do not justify ourselves. And this is great news. You cannot make yourself right before God. You are not involved in a cosmic game of trying to prove to God your worthiness as a Christian. You cannot be impeached because it's not hinging upon you. The theme of the book of Romans is that man can't justify himself. The theme of the book of Romans is that we are hopeless Helpless in our sin. And the good news is that it's not up to us. And so one reason that this is good news is because it's not dependent upon me. The second thing, the second reason it is very good news. That our hope of making it to heaven and enduring till the end. Is that we don't justify ourselves. God does. Let's step back to Romans 3 just real quickly. 
Let me read a couple of verses in Romans chapter 3, verse 24 to 27. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now notice the actor here. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His, God's, righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, look at this, so that he would be, God would be the, both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We don't justify. God does this. And this is great news that the God of the universe, the one that Kurt was Talking about this morning as we were singing. This God of the universe declares us just. We're going to talk about how in a moment. But before we do that, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Where does the whole idea of justice come from? Some evolutionary process that we just kind of stumble upon. Some morals and... Uh, construct some kind of meaning in life because we've been here for billions of years and are able to do that? No. Where does the idea of justice, rightness, come from? God. Who is the only one who defines what sin is and gives us this book Where he defines what sin is. God. Who is the one when we sin that we sin against? God. And so do you start to understand what great news it is when the Bible tells us. Ask the question who will bring an accusation and then gives an answer of it is God. This God who justifies. And I want you to feel the weight of this. And I want you to, to, to ask yourself, have you ever done this? And I want you to see how foolish that is. this is. Have you ever argued with this? Have you ever said, but God, you don't know. You don't know how guilty I am. You don't know what I've done. Really? Whatever sins you think you have... God could add to that list. (laughs) It's this God who justifies. So if you are a Christian, you need to be ready to answer accusers. And when the accusers come around you, and when the accusers look at you and say, Lewis, sinner, guilty, we respond, yes, but... Yes, but God, because of His great love, loved me and justifies me. This is wonderful, great news. The next thing I want you to see as we go to the next verse, it's a very similar question. In fact, I I think it. I don't think there's really much difference in the question. Um, 
But Paul here is moving from not only talking about that it's God is justified, but he tells us how or why, in what way we are justified. And it's not a new theme. We see this all throughout the book of Romans. But So let's see the question and then let's see the answer. Paul answers this in four statements, and we're going to look at each four of these statements. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And so Paul is saying, who can condemn you? And then he walks through these four statements and gives us these four statements about why we are not under condemnation, like it says in Romans 1.8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing we see, and you need to know these, you need to get these deep in your soul, so when that guilt that guilt and the accuser tempts to chain you to the guilt, this is how you battle this, okay? We walk through these things, and you need to know these things, and there are some powerful things to know this morning. So the first thing that we see, who is it who condemns? It says, Jesus Christ is he who died. When we looked at Romans 3.25, it said that Jesus was the propitiation. That is a fancy word. It means that Jesus was the atonement or he was the sacrifice that was made to appease God's wrath. And so that you and I, you and I can stand uncondemned in this world because Christ died in your place. He was your and my substitute. Our penalty was put on him. The wrath of God was satisfied in the death of of Jesus. And so what the scripture is telling us, what Paul is telling us here is that no one can condemn you because your sins have been paid for. No one can condemn you because your sins have been paid for. All of them. Past, present, and future. And it just blows my mind in my own life how this is a simple truth <laughs> And how many times in my own life I take on guilt and condemnation and I don't take that to the foot of the cross and rebuke those things and say, hey, that guilt has been placed upon Jesus. So the first thing that we see when it comes to this guilt, this condemnation, is that we don't stand under that condemnation because Christ has died The second thing that this scripture, this verse tells us, it says, yes, rather who was raised. And I think there are two implications here in this text. The first one is this. The resurrection of Jesus was the vindication of his death, the vindication of Jesus and who he was. In other words, God raising him from the dead was evidence that the sacrifice was sufficient. The work was done. Jesus was vindicated. He lived the sinless life, took our sin on, and then was raised from the dead. The payment was satisfied. So we are not condemned because Christ's offering was accepted and it was sufficient. The second thing that I, that I think is within the context and around the context, and notice from earlier in this chapter, the verse I quoted a minute ago, and then we're going to, Move backwards two chapters. 
But notice, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's look back in chapter 6, verse 8 through 12. I want you to notice something here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you go on obeying its lust. The thing that I want you to see here, the second part of this, one is that in Christ's resurrection, he was vindicated. But the other is that the Bible, particularly in the book of Romans, talks about that we are in Christ and being in Christ as he is raised from the dead, that we walk in the newness of life. We walk in a new way and in a new direction. And so I think it is very fair to say that we are not condemned because in Christ we are walking in a new direction. Do we stumble? Yes, we stumble. But we are headed into a new direction. The third thing. That Paul says in this verse is not only did Christ die, not only was he raised, but notice it says that who is at the right hand of God. And this is what we celebrate next week, his exaltation, his taking his proper place, that when he finished his work on the cross, that he was ushered into he came to ushered into heaven, came to earth and then and then ascended back into heaven, and that he is seated at the right hand of God in his right place. And we know if you've been around church, you understand seated at the right hand of God is a position of power, it's a position of authority, and it's a position of glory. Have you ever asked the question, we're going to get more into this in just one second, but what is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? And I want to show you just part of this. In, um, in the book of Acts, let me go over to the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 31. Paul here is um, his sermon at Mars Hill. Notice what he says about Jesus. It says, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Notice who's going to judge the world. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is the one that was risen from the dead? Jesus. This is the man Paul talks about here. And notice what he, one of the things that he will do. He will judge. This is not the only time we see this. In fact, in the book of John, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, it tells us this. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life, 
does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And so we see the thing that Jesus, one of the things that Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father as all power and glory has been given to him is that he is judging. And so what great news is this to us? That it is this Jesus who is at the right hand of God and he is the one who is judging. And for you and I, what this means is that we have an advocate. We have someone here in the courtroom. And so we have no condemnation because Jesus is the judge. He's the one who's been given the power of authority. And he is the one who has died for us. Which leads us to our last point that Paul gives us. So not only is he at the right hand of God with all power, with all authority given to him, judging, but notice this, and this is maybe the greatest news ever, and that is that Jesus is also there interceding for us. And one of the things we can't do is that we can't um, divide or divorce Jesus' intercession for us from his death. You know what I mean by that? So what Jesus is not doing at the throne of God is saying, oh yeah, Lewis, I know that guy, he's not that bad. It doesn't work. Jesus' intercession is because of, not only is he there because of his death, but the very way that he intercedes for us is based upon his death. So what he is saying is, I died for him. He is mine. He's not there trying to come up with something good about you. And I think it's interesting, in the book of John, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17 uh, gives us a, a, maybe a glimpse, maybe, this is conjecture on my part, but maybe a glimpse of how he's interceding for us. And I'm going to look at verse 11, verses 12, and then verse 24, but just, just listen to this. Jesus, he's, as he's praying, I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And so I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Then in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, Be with me wherever I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. And the thing that Jesus can add to that is, Father, I have died. I have died for this church. Father, protect the ones that you have given me. This is the intercession that Jesus is making for us, I think, here at the throne of God. You are not condemned 
Because Jesus, the one who paid the price for your salvation, is interceding for you. And so you will make it to the end if you are one of his, because Jesus is interceding for you. This is really good news. Really good news. And does it not blow you away? I mean, something that we've learned here in the book of Romans over the past, uh, I don't know when it was that we looked at verse 26, maybe a couple months ago. But that not only is the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness, but Jesus himself is also interceding for us in the throne room. I mean, is this just not the greatest news that you have ever heard? Are you not blown away by this? I mean, the song we sang maybe last week, but it just is so fitting here. Listen to the words of this song. Given everything that we've already said today, listen to the words of this song. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. I love this line. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So if we understand these verses, if we stare deeply into these verses, whenever accusations come, whenever condemnation comes upon us, we can handle it in a much different way than how the world handles it. We don't have to ignore the sin or guilt. We don't have to distract ourselves from the guilt or the sin. We can do something much, much different. We can fight. We can fight sin. We can fight this guilt, this feeling of condemnation, this feeling of accusation. And this is vitally important. I don't think there's anything that paralyzes Christian men and women more than guilt in their lives. I can't tell you the number of Christian men and women and young people that I have met with who deeply love the Lord, deeply desire to be used by the Lord. But you know what they tell me when I talk to them about um, uh, what they're doing with their lives and being a display of Christ in the world? You don't know what I've done. You don't know what sin patterns I'm caught up in. What I'm talking about, let me be real specific. What I'm talking about is in the life of a Christian, what prevents us from recognizing sin, confessing that sin before God, 
going to our brother or our sister, if we need to go to our brother and our sister and make things right, accept the forgiveness that is given to us. It's not conditional. It is given to us. Accepting the forgiveness that is given to us by God. Our brother or sister may not forgive us, but God has forgiven us. Accepting that forgiveness, rejoicing, and going forward and sinning no more. I think we get hung up early in the process. I think we get hung up many times early in the process and we let accusations and condemnation so weigh heavy on us. And what I want to say, brothers and sisters, and I want you to hear from me, is that by doing so, many times we spit in the face of God because we need to understand what we're saying about God and His Son Jesus when we won't come out from under that condemnation and that accusation. And we let that guilt pervade. What we are saying, I think, is two things. Number one is we're saying that Christ's death was not sufficient to cover my sin. Now, not many of us would say that out loud, but when we are allowing ourselves to be under the burden and the accusation that comes from that sin, and we're refusing to handle that, we're refusing to give that to God because we're in the mindset of, oh, I'm a horrible, awful, vile, evil person. I can't believe I'm caught up in this sin. When we let those accusations and that condemnation tell us that we have to do something else with our sin other than take it to the throne of God and let Him take it and look at us and to say, you're my son, I died for that, I love you, go forward, sin no more. When we refuse to do that, something very deep in us is really saying that the death of Christ was not sufficient to cover that sin. And I love you enough to tell you the error in your thinking. Another thing that we're saying, and this is something that I have walked a lot of people through, is uh, I, a lot of times in talking with people, I will real quickly, if, if I see this condemnation, this accusation, this guilt that's just, um, I'll say, well, you know what God says about you? And I'll say, you know, God says you're one of his children, you're his beloved, you're his chosen. I'll go through this list and they just want to, people just want to shrug that off. No, 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 no. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I've been. You don't know this sort of thing. And then I want to take them to, and this is the sin involved in that. If God says, if God says that this is a pink shirt or red, whatever color this is. And I say, no, God, it's a black shirt. Who's right? God's right every time. He made the shirt. He made colors. It's his idea. He's right. When God says, you are my child, you are forgiven, go, sin no more, walk in holiness, be who you are, and you say, no, I can't, who's wrong? You are. Not the God of the universe. The Holy Spirit inspired these two verses to tell you, you're wrong. So, I want to tell you on a very, and I've, I've shared this before, uh, and this just works with me. Um, I, I want to tell you kind of what happens in my life a lot of times and want to just tell you how I deal with things like this, how one of the ways that God's given me to, uh, that, that's helpful. 
Um, and then I want to close by just one more word of, of encouragement. Um, so, so here's how I kind of fight this. My, my inner dialogue is the thing that I fight with the most. And I don't know about you, but I can just be, I can be cruising down the road and boom, something hits my head. Maybe a past memory or, or something. Boom, it's just there, just like that. And, and if I let that run wild, I can get very guilty, depressed, condemned, and accused really quick. One of the things that I've learned to do is that when that happens, and, and then, then there are usually words that come along uh, with that, and, uh, you know, words like, you know, you're, you're a fraud. How can God really love you? You know, you know where you've been. You know what you've done. You know your thought process. And then if we let that run, a lot of times, you know the next thing that we do? We start comparing ourselves with other people. You'll never be as holy as Gary. <laughs> or whoever. He's in the front row. <laughs> and One of the things I've got to do, one of the things that I do in my head, and I fight this inner dialogue, is I say, I, I don't just say stop and try to run away from it. I say, you know, you're right. You're right, but God's word says, I, I, this, is, this is Lewis's inner dialogue. <laughs> You're right, but God's word said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I am in Christ Jesus, therefore there's no condemnation over me. And I'm not, I, I, there's no condemnation. And then I do this little thing in my head <laughs> where whatever sin or whatever that is there, I will imagine it. If I'm alone and not driving, I'll close my eyes. <laughs> and a lot of times what I'll do is I will picture whatever that sin is and I will put that sin on the cross. You've heard me say this before if you've been here for a long time. I will, I will see that sin being put on Jesus. I will picture His crucifixion. I will picture Him being put in the grave. And then I'll picture Him being... Um, the stone being rolled away, I'll picture Jesus, the risen Savior and risen Lord, and guess what is not on Jesus anymore? My sin. It's been dealt with. The cross was enough. And at this point, my soul rejoices. And I may have to do this, you know, many times a day, but this is what I have to take myself through for these sins that are confessed, for these sins that I have given over to God, that I have to trust that He has taken them. I have to trust that there's no accuser. I have to trust that He's no longer condemning me. I have to trust that His will for me is that I walk in victory and not in accusation and condemnation, that that guilt is gone. Now, what I want to end with this morning is just two things. I, I want to encourage you, some of you here this morning may have some unconfessed sin in your life that you need to take to the Lord and confess these sins. And when you confess these sins, you need to be ready and willing to accept the forgiveness and the grace that God has given you.
your sin has been paid for on the cross. And I want to take it just one step further uh, as we close and just say this. The Bible says that we are to confess our sins to one another. And I don't think that's so that we can navel gaze or so that we can say, oh, I'm not that bad. Gary's sin this week was a lot worse than mine. That's not the reason for that. The reason that the Bible tells us to confess our sins to one another is that the assumption is that when I confess my sins to Gary, that Gary says, hey, do you know what God says about that? You're his child. You're loved. Go and sin no more. Walk in holiness. God is with you. The Holy Spirit is working in you. And so I just want to encourage you all this morning that you need a brother or a sister in the Lord who can encourage you in this way. And be careful. You know, it, uh, it, it can be a little rough if you choose to confess your sin to someone and they go. Or if you're in a bad place in a relationship with someone, that may not be the person you confess your sin to because they may add to that list. If you're in a fight with your spouse and you say, hey, and you know, you need someone you can go to who's going who's gonna to give you biblical counsel. It's not okay to continue in sin. But it's also not okay to lay under and chain yourself, shackle yourself to the guilt of that sin. Because the scripture said there is none who accuse you. The only one who can accuse the Christian is the Godhead. And Paul went to this extreme, extreme way to let us know that they're for us and not against us. Let's pray.